Hello and welcome to the Goddess Project Podcast side series, Goddess Talks. I'm so very excited to share this side series with you, which are just going to be a few episodes um, that are embedded through the other episodes, the regular episodes of the Goddess Project. And the Goddess Talks will be interviews with other scholars, with other people that are in the field of goddess worship, of the divine feminine, people that I really want to talk uh, to about the goddess. So this series is a little bit selfish and in the sense that it is something that I enjoy doing and that I love doing. And so I'm very, very excited to share it with you guys. And I'm very excited to have these conversations and, you know, widen the circle and of scholars and widen the knowledge that can be shared. Often a lot of scholars that are doing really fantastic work are not on social media or haven't really developed like a YouTube site or other sites. And then sometimes they have fantastic social media. And so I really would like to share with everyone some of the people that inspire me and some of the writers that I find intriguing and also that I find their research super intriguing. So welcome to the Goddess Talks series. I hope that you enjoyed the series as much as I enjoyed recording it. Today we are going to be talking to Laura Perry about the ancient world of the Minoans. Laura Perry is a priestess and creator who works magic with words, paint, ink, music, textiles, and herbs. She is the founder and temple mom of modern Minoan paganism, aka Adrian Ariadne's tribe, as well as a third-degree Wiccan priestess, a Reiki master, and a longtime herbalist and naturopath. She has published three nonfiction books, three novels, a coloring books, and a tarot deck, as well as contributing to seven anthologies, editing two, and collaborating on a second tarot deck. Her, her articles have appeared in Spiral Nature, The Magical Times, Indie Shaman, Sage Woman, and Pagan Dawn magazines, among others. She also works as a freelance editor, helping writers polish up their work until it shines. When she's not busy drawing, writing, or leading rituals and workshops, you can probably find her digging in the garden or giving a living history demonstration at a local historical site. Her website is lauraperryauthor.com. The Ariadne's Tribe website is ariadnestribe.wordpress.com, and you can find all that in the video um, that follows. You can also follow her Ariadne's Tribe group on Facebook, which is a wonderful group full of Minoan um, news and art and just beautiful conversations. And so I'm very, very excited to talk to Laura Perry today and to share this talk with you guys. We had a blast filming and I learned so much from her about the Minoan culture about the way that the Minoan culture has been received, explored, and shared, and about all the ways in which Minoan culture still needs to be discovered. And so I hope that you enjoy this talk, um, and please welcome Laura Perry. Oh, hello, and welcome to uh, the Goddess Project, Goddess Talk Series. I'm here with Laura Perry an expert in Minoan civilization. Welcome, welcome. It's so good to have you and to talk about Minoan culture. Well, thank you so much for inviting me. This is exciting. I'm, I'm uh, very happy to be here. Yes, I'm so glad because my interest in Minoan culture has really peaked more recently. You know, um, when I was working on Artemis, I did come across some Cretan stuff, but I kind of swept it away, which I can't believe in retrospect that I did that. Um, now I'm fascinated. And then when I went to Crete the very first time, I just bumped into her everywhere, you know, uh, or her temples or whatever. And then I thought, oh, perhaps this is something to look more closely at. And then that started the ball rolling. But I am no expert in the sense of like, even the conversations that we're having, for example, on Facebook in, in your group and then in, in my group, uh, I love your feedback. It's so specific. Um, and so I'm wondering, is there anything in particular that you'd want to talk about first? Is there something that you really feel like, you know what, this is a subject that I think we should cover when we talk about Minoan things? Um, so yeah, um, there are a lot of misconceptions about the Minoans. And I spend a lot of time sort of educating people because the Minoans are usually uh, overlooked 
like in school history, they don't exist somehow, you know, ancient history starts with the classical Greeks a thousand years later. True. Very true. Yeah. And so, um, first of all, the Minoans were not Greek. Um, they, uh, their ancestors came from Anatolia, modern day Turkey, and migrated down into the Aegean during the Neolithic, during several, one of several waves of migration, uh, west and south into Europe as uh, populations expanded when people started farming. Hmm. So that's around like 10,000, 9,000 BCE. And, um, so those people are not Indo-European. This is part of uh, old Europe uh, prior to the Indo-Europeans. Mm -hmm. People came down to Crete and settled there and um, they started farming, uh, their populations grew. And those are the people who eventually came to be called the Minoans. Um, when it got to um, the Bronze Age around 3,500, 3,000 BCE, that's when their culture starts looking like what we think of as Minoans with the big cities and the temples and the art and, and all of that. Um, and so, and they are distinct from the Mycenaeans. The Mycenaeans are an Indo-European people, right? So their ancestors started out on the Eurasian steppe and migrated West uh, into Europe during the Bronze Age. Um, you know, 4,000, 3,000 BCE. And one of those waves of migration came down into Greece and uh, eventually became the Mycenaeans with whom the Minoans traded and eventually were in conflict with. Um, but so, so the Minoans are, um, even though Crete is part of the modern day nation of Greece, uh, the Minoans were not Greek. So that's that's the main uh, misconception that I like to make sure people understand. Yeah, I think that's so important. And you're absolutely right. I I teach sometimes ancient myth and it's called uh, there's a course called Myth and Imagination and we sometimes talk about Greeks, but you're absolutely right that we we start at classical Greece. Oh, I mean, mm -hmm. people ask about the Minoans ever in the Mycenaeans because they think, you know, Agamemnon comes out of the Mycenaean tradition. Right. But uh but I think that's an important distinction. So thank you. Yes. Uh, what do you think is unique to them and no one's perhaps um, that then becomes, you know, part of the culture later on? Well, one of the uh, interesting things about them is that they appear to have continued uh, Neolithic religion and cultural values into the Bronze Age. Mm -hmm. So in a sense, they are sort of a window into an earlier time and an earlier culture. Um, and also that probably made the people around them view them as kind of sort of those kooky old fashioned people. <laughs> <laughs> if they have not moved with the times, they still do all the stuff that our ancestors did, you know? So um, it, it probably put them in an unusual position. They were in an unusual position anyway, because they were not a militarized, culture. Um, this is another uh, set of, I call them the three M's, <clears throat> the, the misconception, the, the three things that Sir Arthur Evans, who was the archaeologist who uh, excavated, the second archaeologist to excavate Knossos, and who popularized the Minoans across Europe, um, he insisted that they were militaristic, monarchic, and monotheistic. Okay, because the Minoans were a high civilization, you know, by sort of Western European standards, they had um, big cities, multi-story buildings, paved streets, enclosed sewers, um, aqueducts. They had aqueducts a millennium before the Mino before the Romans. Incredible, incredible. And so they had this high culture. And Evans, who was a white Victorian era British man um, could not conceive of a high culture that wasn't, that was substantially different from the culture he came from, which was uh, uh, the sort of British empire, Victorian era British empire, which was militaristic. They had a monarch 
and they were Christian, uh, Christian empire. And so he applied those, um, those sets of values and that worldview onto the Minoans. And so when he found the big building in Knossos, he assumed it must be a palace for a king, right? Because a high culture must have a king, right? And, and he saw these um, images of goddesses everywhere. And he said, oh, well, this is a high culture. So they must be monotheistic. There must be just one, just one goddess. Um, and then he assumed that because they were so wealthy and successful, they must have had a military because he couldn't comprehend of a culture being that successful without conquest. Yes. And okay. so, and he turns out to have been dead wrong about all three. <laughs> <laughs> he was right about some other things, okay. But but he was he was very, very wrong about the the sort of basic uh setup of the culture there is um despite people's desperation to find uh especially a monarch and a military um in the minoans there is no real evidence for either um and it turns out um well let, let me um let me qualify that it is possible they had something like a merchant marine to protect their trading fleet. Mm -hmm. Makes sense. Yeah. Because there was a certain amount of piracy uh, in the Mediterranean at that time, but they were not conquest driven. They were on an Island. They had, they were bordered by the sea. They didn't threaten anybody. And so that put them in a unique position of being able to trade with pretty much everybody around the whole Mediterranean without threatening any of them. And so um, they, they became extremely successful doing just that. That's incredible. I also heard that Evans, when he discovered Gnosis, he was, there may have been some movement or replacement of things or, and, and correct me if I'm wrong, or like the way that he shifted or the way that he organized. Cause I know at the Iraqi museum, they have that, uh, wooden, um, structure of what it must have looked at like. Right. I, how accurate do you think that is? Um, um, the first floor part of it is extremely accurate because the ground floor, if <laughs> uh, Americans call the the primary ground floor the first floor, and the rest okay. of the world calls it the ground floor, and they call the next one the first floor. <laughs> uh, <laughs> I always have to qualify that because international listeners are like, wait a minute, which floor are you talking about? Right, right. So the one that was actually at ground level um, was excavated and the remains of it were found clearly. And so the delineation of that is is unequivocal and it's its footprint is huge. It's something like six acres. Yes, it's massive. Mm. Yes. And the uh, the rest of it is educated guests, reasonable educated guests, mm. based on the amount of of rubble and layers of things that were found to because it all collapsed. The building eventually collapsed in, right? And so as they were um, as they were peeling the layers off uh, during the excavation, they could estimate how tall you know the building was, and so it was at least two stories everywhere. And it appears to, there appear to have been sections of it that were three or four stories tall in places. So it was was really pretty, pretty massive. Um, the main complaints about Evan's reconstructions are that he, um, he used concrete um, and yeah, he used concrete in his reconstructions and probably permanently damaged parts of the original in ways that uh, can't be uh, can't be repaired. Uh, he he was accused at the time, and this is probably true, of having been trying to build a tourist attraction. Oh, yes, because we talked about that because there is a tourist attraction that's sort of a yes. duplicate of that. Yeah. yeah. And, um, and he also... He was he was British. He was not wealthy. He was not an aristocrat, but he wanted to be a part of that society. Mm -hmm. And in the 
Victorian and Edwardian era, it was very popular among British aristocrats to build what were called follies, which were fake old ruined buildings on their estates. This was like a very popular thing to like pretend you had a, a ruin from ancient times on your estate. And so uh, Evans purposely built his reconstruction as a ruin. That's why it looks like that today, instead of looking like, a, instead of being reconstructed like a fully new building. Wow. So he was imitating the British aristocrats that he wanted to, uh, to be connected with um, socially. So. Oh, wow, what a piece of trivia. That's really great. That's really great and sad a bit about the, the reconstruction. I'm wondering, so if you, do you think that that would be, do you think that that's a palace or, cause I know you, you, you don't like using the word palace, but what do you, like, do you think it's a city? What do you, what do you think that would be? What name? Well, the, um, the, the current, uh, the current theory, fairly well-supported theory among uh, archeologists is that the big buildings in the middle of the Minoan cities are temples. Okay. And they are um, temples in the same way that the temples in uh, Mesopotamia of the same time were, which is they were centers not just for religious practice, <coughs> excuse me, but also for um, administration and government of the local area. Hmm. And there's uh, plenty of archaeological evidence for that there is essentially no evidence of of any kind of monarchy um the the buildings the the ground floors of the buildings um the temples uh typically the west wing is entirely uh ritual space and then the uh the east area and the north and the south area so this these would all ring the central courtyard um, were um, workshop areas. So there were actually artisan workshops, uh, weavers and stone carvers and uh, jewelers and bronzesmiths uh, and potters actually in the temples. So they would be making like temple branded items, which I'm sure would have traded for a premium. Um, and then the upper floors appear to have been residential space. So like the clergy, the priesthood who lived in the temples, um, those would have been uh, their housing area. Wow. And, you know, the more you say that, the more I think about uh, Faistos. Faistos is very clearly divided that way. Um, they call it the Palace of Faistos. And so when I wrote that up, I'm like, that's what they call it. But uh, but yeah. it's very clearly divided exactly mm -hmm. how you've described, you know, the courtyard, then the temple site, then they have like what they call storerooms, mm -hmm. um, you know, and then they have that steps. I can't remember exactly the name that the, the, the steps that go up to the, I guess what they call sort of where the elite would live and they call it apartments and balconies and stuff like that. Yeah. But yeah, you're right. The, the, the implication is that the wealthy live there. I think there's even a couple of phrases where they say like, Wealthy people would be in the apartments while regular everyday people would be like on the front and the bottom there. Um, so I think that's still a bit part of the descriptions of some of the of the sites. Yeah, the signage at all the sites, as far as I'm aware, still says palace because um, that's what Evans called them. And because honestly, that tends to um, create an image in people's minds that might be more attractive to tourists. And um, Greece is not the wealthiest nation. I totally understand them wanting to uh, attract more tourists, bring more people in to help the local economy. Uh, I just wish they could do it without leaving outdated information on all the signs because then all the visitors go home thinking that they learned, you know, that people assume that signage at historic sites is accurate and up to date. Absolutely, yes. You're absolutely right. So, yeah, and and even at Feistos, for example, one of the complaints. So when I was there, there was no one there, right? Because I was there literally, I think, the day after Christmas or the day before Christmas Day, mm -hmm. and uh, and the the Greeks, the Cretans that were there, 
they kind of looked at me like, what is this girl doing here on this day? You know? Uh, so I got to hang out with cats and talk to them for a bit. But for them, one of the things that they said was also they don't get as many visitors out there. Um, so the site doesn't have as much, I guess, uh, revenue as the Gnosis Palace. Right. Palace. Um, and so we kind of talked about that and how did, how do you gain interest and do people know about it and kind of stuff like, cause it is really lovely there. Like, uh, I know Gnosis is also very wonderful, but, uh, the Phaistus Palace temple is, um, I actually thought that there was a lot more available of the ruins. Like, I just felt like, I don't know, there was more walking space and everything was kind of more there, but. Um, but yeah, they still call it, yeah, they still call it a, a palace. Yeah. Wow. The one thing that I didn't notice actually, now that I just think of it and, and I just thought I would ask you about it is there was no horns where at Gnosis, I know the horns are replicas, but they placed horns there where at, uh, the Feistos area, they didn't have horns. So do you mind like letting, like talking about horns, like what is important about horns and do you think they had them in Feistos? Okay, so what you're talking about is uh, what Evans called horns of consecration. Which That's is right. Yes. And um, what most people these days call just sacred horns, the Minoan sacred horns. And it's a stylized pair of horns um, that bears a certain resemblance to the Egyptian horizon sign, among yes. other things. But interestingly... The sacred horns can be traced straight back to Neolithic Anatolia, where the Minoans' ancestors came from. Huh. The horns are in the art back then in that place. And so those, and labrises as well, and bulls and cows, you know, with horns, um, all of that began at least as early as Neolithic Anatolia and traveled with the people down to Crete and then continued as a part of their religion. Wow. And so, um, okay, so Evans uh, made that concrete cast set of horns and set them out uh, in front of the building because there is a miniature fresco. It's called the Grandstand Fresco. And the central part of it shows what is probably part of the facade of the Knossos Temple. Um, and it shows sacred horns along the top of the roof, along the yes. roof. And that is exactly the way the replica has it too. The wooden replica has the little sacred horns yes. all on top of it. Mm -hmm. And then um, there is other art as well. There's a uh, the sanctuary riton, a carved stone uh, conical riton from, oh gosh, where's that from? I'm going to, I'm going to give the wrong, it's, Hagia Triada or Zakros, one of those. Anyway, one of the places that we get a lot of um, stone carving from. <coughs> Excuse me. And it also shows, um, it shows a peak sanctuary building with sacred horns lined across the top of the roof like that. And so, and there are other uh, fresco fragments, uh, seals and, and other works of art that show pretty much every major religious building that has been depicted has sacred horns along the roof line. And so it's a pretty good bet that that was standard, you know, a standard feature of temples and sacred houses and shrines and peak sanctuaries. Hmm. And so what, what, does it, what does it refer to? What does it represent? Well, that's a good question. <laughs> <laughs> So, because we don't have, you know, a Minoan around to ask, right? Uh, have to, we have to interpret the sort of thing as best we can. Um, there, there really is no such thing as a symbol with just one meaning, you know, at any point in any human culture, right? So we know about layers of meaning. Um, and the fact that it goes all the way back to Neolithic Anatolia suggests that it's got a lot of layers because it's it was in use, you know, as far back as maybe 10,000 BCE. Um, so what I'm going to tell you now is, is totally modern interpretation. This is what the Ariannese tribe people have 
uh, have figured out that we think the, the sacred horns uh, means. So one layer is it's stylized animal horns. Um, horned animals were, uh, were very important in Minoan religion, not just cattle. And I will point out that uh, in ancient times, cows as well as bulls had horns. So if you see a bovine head with horns, it might be a cow, not a bull. You can't assume it's a bull unless you can see <clears throat> bull parts. Uh, <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> um, so, so the horns are clearly stylized animal horns. Um, the sanctuary riton shows them alongside goats. So they might, uh, they might also uh, represent that kind of horned animal. Um, we think the reason that they were lined up on the rooftops, the roofs of, of Minoan buildings were flat, just like you see <clears throat> on a lot of buildings around the Mediterranean today. So you could actually go out and stand on these roofs. And we think the sacred horns were used as uh, a way to sight the rising and setting of celestial objects, the sun, the moon, uh, planets, stars, um, because astronomy was a major part of Minoan religion. Um, there is actually a, uh, there's a group of people at Uppsala University who have done extensive archaeoastronomy research. Um, if you Google the Uppsala Archaeo astronomy project, you will find their website with all their uh, academic papers on it. Um, Minoan temples and other sacred buildings have lots and lots and lots of alignments to the risings and settings of celestial objects. Mm -hmm. um, and so that was, was a major part of the religion. Um, and so being able to keep an eye out for these things, there were probably, you know, priests and priestesses who spent the night standing on the roof watching the sky move and waiting for various uh, various stars, planets, whatever, to come up between uh, any particular pair of sacred horns. Wow. Um, you know, I've heard <laughs> so many different theories about this, but this is one of the most unique ones I've heard, which is really fascinating. Also, it makes a lot of sense, I think. Um, cause I've heard a lot about, you know, sort of the bull imagery or even the cow imagery as like the, the, the divine bovine kind of, um, traditions in, in, in Egypt and other areas. Um, but th this, this is really fascinating. And I think, I think you're right in the sense that the Minoans are famous for like their math skills, their astronomy skills there. Right. That's amazing. I had a question about the animals because you were saying goats and bulls. And we talked, I think, once about antelopes being taken to the uh, to the altar. And so I just wanted to ask, I mean, antelopes, is that is that deer, do you think? Or were there antelopes in Greece? Because I have not looked that up yet. Like, um, okay, so the fresco that you're talking about is called the fallow, fallow deer fresco from Hagia Triada. And it's to fallow deer, which is a variety of deer that have spots on them, even when they're yeah. adults, um, being two of them being led toward an altar. And um, we assume that that is sort of um, uh, a rebus or a metaphor for sac animal sacrifice, because animal sacrifice does appear uh, very clearly in Minoan art. Mm -hmm. um, <coughs> There is a fresco from Akrotiri that is called the antelope fresco. And there's a lot of argument as to whether those are really antelopes um, because um, antelopes didn't live uh, in the Aegean on those right. islands. But other animals also appear in Minoan art that didn't live on those islands, like lions, right? I mean, there were there were lions in the mountains of northern Greece up in the Balkans, but there were not lions in the Aegean. The lions came down also from Neolithic Anatolia as part of that set of iconography. Mm -hmm. And so that they traveled along with the people. And so they continue to appear in Minoan art. Um, What's interesting is that 
Um, mo in most of Minoan art, the animals are depicted so accurately that um, scientists can actually identify the specific species. Wow. Being depicted. So like the dolphin fresco from Canassas, those are short-beaked common dolphins. Um, there's a red-legged partridge and a hoopoe in the partridge fresco um, from Canassas. So, I mean, very specific, very accurately depicted animals, but lions, oh my gosh, the way they draw lions, you, you just know it's a lion because, you know, they're, um, the artistic license is expensive. Um, <laughs> <laughs> and so, yeah, it's it's clear that that pretty much a hundred percent of the Minoan artists who drew lions had never seen one. <laughs> That's amazing. I've never paid that much attention, but next time I will, uh, and I'll be sure to tag you and be like, "You're absolutely right. This is terrible." Um, oh my God, there's so much I I I, I want to talk about, but. Okay, let's talk about maybe, let's talk about the labyrinth since these are sort of major symbols that I think people associate with, certainly okay. with Crete and with Mino the Minoan period. And so mm -hmm. I guess the la one of the things that I'm curious about is that the labyrinth is a much more ancient uh, symbol. It's a very old symbol, let's say, very archaic right. symbol. Um, and so I guess I'm wondering if what your thoughts are on how and why it got to Crete, and then perhaps, and I don't know if you know, so if you don't know, just say Carla, like, I don't know all the things of all the world, uh, but you know, how and why maybe it got to Crete, and maybe how and why it became so associated with Minos and the Minotaur and that whole legend. Um, yeah, if you know anything about that, the labyrinth and that. Okay, um, so the interesting thing about the labyrinth is that um, there really aren't any in the art until very, very late Minoan times. There are designs that are called meanders, which are um, sort of like a complicated Greek key kind of design. Mm -hmm. And those are all over Minoan art and those go back to Neolithic Anatolia and old Europe. Um, so th that was very widespread, the sort of, they, they kind of go, it's like a squared off spiral. Mm -hmm. Yeah. <clears throat> excuse me and yeah. so those are everywhere the first uh labyrinth that shows up is on the back of a linear b tablet from i think it's Pylos or tyrans one of the mycenaean sites up in greece not even on crete and it's a doodle on the back oh my god it is a doodle on the back of a tablet because the, the linear B tablets were not, they're not formal records. They are actually just sort of, they're pieces of clay about the size of your hand, just flat uh, little slabs of clay. And they were used for note taking when uh, tribute and offerings were being brought to temples or up in Greece were being brought to the, uh, I guess they're called palaces. Um, and so this would be just a slab of wet clay that the scribes took notes on. And then uh, they would transfer that information to a more permanent record. Uh, and we think they probably used papyrus. There's some evidence that, that they would have written things on papyrus. And then when they had done that, they would wipe that piece of clay smooth, <laughs> excuse me, and use it again. And so, Somebody got bored during one of these times when they were supposed to be recording the offerings and they doodled um, a labyrinth on the back. Um, there's another one that's got a doodle of a, a pretty nice looking guy in a short skirt. Um, so seriously, the, you know, the, these were human beings, okay? These are not, you know, so, um, so you don't really see the labyrinth design, but the word labyrinth is pre-Greek. Um, it may very well have come from the Minoans themselves. It shows up for the first time in a linear B tablet, so we know it's that old. <clears throat> um, then uh, there, at the at the end of Minoan civilization, after 
they, their civilization collapsed. Um, there was a more widespread collapse called the Late Bronze Age Collapse, the LBA Collapse. Um, and that was a period of, of chaos. Uh, you might call it a Dark Ages uh, across the Eastern Mediterranean. And once, uh, once people started to pick themselves up and dust themselves off after that, um, you, you're into the beginning of classical times. <laughs> and so we don't know <clears throat> really what happened between the end of the Minoans and the beginning of classical times. Right. Um, but by the beginning of classical times, the labyrinth had become uh, iconic of Crete. It shows up on some early coins um, and coins uh, were in a currency. Hard currency was not a thing during the Bronze Age. It, it's uh, an early Iron Age invention. Um, and then you get the story of the Minotaur. Now, uh, this is another one of those things that those uh, misconceptions that I spend a lot of time educating people about. Um, because the Minotaur is most well known from the tale of Theseus uh, and his voyage to Crete. Okay, so, so Theseus is a Greek culture hero. He first shows up in like the seventh, sixth century uh, BCE. So this is classical times. This is centuries after the Minoans are gone. And, <clears throat> and he is, he has a whole, uh, a whole encyclopedia worth of tales about him for centuries before the Minotaur story is added. Really? So the Minotaur story isn't added to his repertoire until the fourth, maybe, century BCE. And um, it looks like it was written as a way to help Athens establish its identity. Um, and, yeah. And so uh, it's the story is designed to show the Greeks as um, civilized, modern, forward, um, very shiny and to show the Minoans as uh, barbaric and backward. And so um, that's, you know, most people, that's the story that most people hear first about the Minoans is the Theseus and the Minotaur myth. And it says essentially that the Minoans were, um, well, first of all, they were a monarchy. Um, right. That's, you know, that's why they're called the Minoans because Sir Arthur Evans named them after King Minos. Right, right. So, um, and so they're depicted as as not just a monarchy, but a cruel and barbaric one that's got a monster locked in the basement that it feeds children to, you know. And <clears throat> so it's it's definitely a bit of smear PR against against a culture that didn't exist anymore, which is a handy target. Um, and in a way, so essentially it was part of a marketing campaign um, to improve Athens' place in the world. I love that. Like, wow, I love that explanation. It makes so much sense. Even today when you go to Crete, it's very much, I mean, and everywhere. I mean, Theseus has become, and the Minotaur has become a big sort of story. It's kind of picking up speed or sort of returning to that. And the labyrinth is another but, uh, and so no one really, no one puts it quite chronolo chronologically the way that you've just said that. And I wonder if the Greeks also, or the Athenians especially thought, well, the, the Minoans, whoever they might've been, the Cretans, whoever they were, were also a wealthy, successful society. And so right. we've conquered that, you know, we've, uh, because in the beginning, of course, the Athenians are off making the offering. So they're a bit of submissive to Crete. And I could never understand mm -hmm. why that was, because like you say, Crete didn't have a military. And so Athens is suddenly afraid of King Minos and this Minotaur in the basement enough to send yearly tributes. And so I thought that seems a bit illogical. It doesn't seem to make sense. But then, of course, Theseus comes and saves the day um, and steals the princess and all those kind of classic stories um 
which then leads me to uh, goddesses and and Ariadne. So uh, I'm wondering, you know, so I'm wondering what you think of Ariadne as a character, as a historical figure within obviously reason. <laughs> <laughs> because we have no evidence that she's a, a historical figure, but sort of, you know, what what grew up and so attached to Creed. And then I'm just wondering, what do you think are some of the goddesses that are more authentic to Crete and particularly authentic to the Minoans? Well, I mean, Ariadne obviously is the most well known. Yeah. Uh, she's depicted as a mortal, as a princess. Um my my usual derogatory description of her is that the Greeks just think she's a girl with a ball of string. Um, right. But um, it is a common practice when one culture overcomes another or conquers another to demote the deities of the conquered culture to uh, some kind of lesser being, whether that's a nymph uh, a nature spirit, a mortal, whatever. And this is common worldwide. You can you can see it in comparative mythology. This is not unique um, to the Greeks. And so what they did here was essentially take the fragments of, of myth and folklore about the Minoans and from the Minoans um, myth and pantheon, uh, fragments that had survived the LBA collapse. And uh, they took those and they kind of wove them together into a new story. And so you have to follow those threads backwards. Um, it's, it's pretty clear that Ariadne um, was a goddess to begin with. Um, there are actually uh, goddesses who are named in the Linear B tablets. Um, and so uh, there, and and in uh, I'm I'm trying to 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 organize this here. So, for instance, Vritomartis, um, Vritomartis, uh, in modern Greek, um, she has a lot of layers. Um, but she goes back to a, a goddess figure who looks a lot like Artemis, uh, to be really honest. Mm -hmm. And uh, one of our board members uh, has, is a uh, dance ethnologist. And she has done extensive research into all of these uh, via folk tradition around the Mediterranean. And um, her research points toward an old Mediterranean sun goddess Ooh. who uh, eventually was demoted or, or shifted to being a moon goddess when the Indo-Europeans moved in <clears throat> because the sky was their sky god's territory, right? And so the women had to like get out of the way. <clears throat> And so um, you get a bunch of goddesses who look like they might originally have been sun goddesses. Um, so Gridomartis, um, Pasiphae, and Europa. And Europa, yes. Europa continues to be quite popular in Crete. That's right. Yeah. Yeah. And, and so they, they look like sun goddesses. Like Europa, it looks uh, very similar to Hathor in, in as a sort of cow sun goddess. Yeah. And uh, yeah, there, there are some interesting, uh, speaking of returning to the concept of labyrinths, um, one, of the, uh, one of the titles uh, in the Linear B tablets, one of the epithets uh, of a goddess uh, is Lady of the Labyrinth, Hotnia Labyrinthos. Um, of course, it's just the epithet because back then everybody knew which goddess it was. And um, we kind of have to make our best guess. And we think it's Ariadne. Um, if she's the one who has the thread that leads you through the labyrinth, then it must be her labyrinth, right? Yes. What a powerful image. What a, yes. Oh, like I, I have so many feelings about the the way that they've transformed her and sort of, I mean, I had feelings already about her 
story as it is because it's already so terrible you know the the whole like I... Uh, the treatment of her and this, this sort of passivity of her character. Uh, but now that, that you say that it's uh, even maybe a little more infuriating. It's a little bit more like, yeah. <laughs> well, she was passive as was appropriate for a classical era Greek girl. Right. I mean, yeah. You got to think of the cultural context. Yes. Yes. <clears throat> I'm artist Europa um, there's, and, and the mistress of animals, of course, that keeps coming up the, the, the Panya Theron. Um, okay. So that's a different, um, subject, um, that I, I don't know how to, um, to put this gently. Um, when people see, when people see a picture of a goddess flanked by animals and they don't know how to read the iconography, iconography, they call her mistress of the animals. Okay. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Okay. If you look at, um, so the entire, during the Bronze Age, the entire Eastern Mediterranean was one single giant sort of cultural exchange area. <clears throat> Excuse me. <laughs> um, and so there's a certain amount of uh, iconographic similarity uh, across the whole area especially in Mesopotamia and the Levant and into the Aegean. And then it gets also borrowed up into Mycenaean Greece as well. And one of the standard iconographic tropes, a sort of formula is a female figure in the middle with two animals on either side facing her. Mm -hmm. Sometimes this gets simplified so that instead of an actual female figure in the middle, there's a, a column or a pillar or a, or a tree, a stylized tree. Mm -hmm. Those always represent the goddess. That's like shorthand for the goddess. Okay. So the animals tell you which goddess it is. Kind of like in Egyptian uh, iconography, the headdress tells you which deity it is. Right. So Isis has the throne, Hathor has the horns with the solar disc. Um, in Minoan iconography, um, the, uh, the goddess flanked by lions is Rhea. The, the lion mother goddess goes all the way back to Neolithic Anatolia. Um, you know, flanked by goats, maybe that's uh, Britomartis. Okay. So the, the animal uh, tells you which goddess it is. Fascinating. Yeah. And so there's not specifically a mistress of animals. Um, most of the deities have some kind of animal iconography associated with them. Again, this is one of the first time that I hear this, 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 I love this take. Uh, I remember reading even when I was doing my PhD studies, a lot of uh, archaeologists that were writing in the 1960s and 70s, and they use this term mistress of animals, like in, you know, they really mixed, they, they placed it everywhere. And you're right, everywhere that there was a female centered by some kind of animals, um, or she's holding on, like, it looks like she's holding on to the necks of animals. Sometimes mm -hmm. I think there's ducks, not ducks or swans or something too. Um, but it's interesting that uh, I don't remember this this sort of fine explanation, which I think is really fascinating, and makes sense that you that they would know the goddess right away based on the animals. Yeah, I mean you can read uh, Mesopotamian iconography the same way. Um, it's the same same trope. Um, a lot of archaeologists don't know about this because academia is so um, so separated by field. And what I'm talking about now is um, is comparative religion and religious iconography, which is something that most archaeologists don't get into. Mm -hmm. And so um, it's not so much that they are um, they're wrong; it's that this is a a subject that is not within their specialty, and so they are often just not aware of it. Right. Right. <clears throat> so. Oof, time flies. I would like to talk about the I would like to talk about the bull leaping before maybe I let you All go right. and let our listeners go. I know that we've talked a little bit about the the bull leaper athlete and, mm -hmm. and bull leaping. And I'm just wondering if you can tell us a little bit about it. 
historically as a practice or as a game or as whatever, and also the possibility that men and women practiced this sport. Okay. Um, so first of all, um, I grew up on a farm. Um, I know about cattle. So I, I have uh, a unique point of view about all of this. Um, the um, Sir Arthur Evans originally suggested that the bull leaping was held in the central courtyards of the temples. <clears throat> okay, so the central courtyards were paved with stone. I promise you, no, no bovine animal is going to be able to run across a stone paved courtyard without slipping all over the place because they have hard hooves. My God, this is such a simple and yet often overlooked point. Like as you're saying it, I'm like, yeah, that's right. Yeah, I see a lot of artwork depicting uh, the bull leaping being done in the courtyards and the artwork always shows the ground as being bare, but those courtyards were stone paved, solid. Yes. Um, so, and, and also simply because of the way the buildings were built, they would have literally had to lead a bunch of bulls through multiple rooms, you know, <laughs> interior rooms in order to reach the courtyard. And I'm thinking this is probably not, you know, the best idea. Yeah. Um, so the the general theory these days, um, and and archaeologists have pretty much cottoned on to this, is that the bull leaping probably took place in purpose built arenas outside the temples, and the arenas were probably wooden, just didn't survive. I mean, there are a lot of wooden structures um, that simply didn't survive. All we've got left is the stone. Yeah. Okay. So. Um, there is a pretty good chance <clears throat> that, <clears throat> excuse me, that the bulls were trained in the same way that we train circus animals. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, cattle are eminently trainable. Most people don't know this. Um, if you've ever seen a movie that has like a bull uh, breaking through a wall. Yeah. Okay, that that is a trained animal that is literally... Um, they're, they are put behind the wall, which is usually made of something very lightweight like balsa wood, so it won't hurt them when they're coming through it. And their trainer is standing on the other side of that wall with the bull's favorite treat. <laughs> and so the, the bull crashes through the wall, runs over to the trainer and gets their treat. <laughs> the one that, uh, that, I, that I knew personally loved bananas. Oh my um, God. And so he would pretty much, yeah, I mean, if if cattle are um, are used to being handled from the time they're little, they're essentially like giant dogs that move. Um, they are that trainable and that friendly and that about that smart. Um, so so the bulls were probably trained, meaning that the leaping was probably about as dangerous as a circus act. So it was still dangerous, right? Yeah. Yes. Uh, yes. You know. You know, a, a, a 2,000 pound animal will still break your leg if it trips over you. Yeah. Um, but the bull leaping would not have been um, just a wild and crazy kill everyone while you do it kind of thing. Um, it was probably, I mean, it's, it, it, the art makes it pretty clear that it was religious. There's religious iconography around a lot of the bull leaping um, depictions, like on the seals especially. Um, <clears throat> so it was probably associated with cattle deities. Um, my personal theory is that it was probably um, the funeral games of one of the dying and reborn gods in his bull form. Mm -hmm. um, and uh, and yes, it appears that both uh, men and women were believers. Um, the art is clear. Um, Minoan art has a uh, has a color distinction between male and female figures. Um, the that women are always depicted as white skinned, and I mean unnaturally white, like titanium dioxide white, <clears throat> and have dark red skin. 
And this is not because the women spent all day indoors and never got a suntan. Right. Okay. DNA evidence shows us that all the Minoans had brown skin. They had brown skin and brown eyes and dark brown to black hair. Um, so the, um, the color is uh, also a part of the iconography. Um, the dance ethnology uh, research, once again, uh, gives us this piece of information. The white in the women refers to the grain mother goddess oh. and the white grain and the red is her son uh the red champion and these two figures still exist in modern folk dance and folk tradition around the mediterranean today you see the red and white color combination in seasonal folk dances no way it's on <clears throat> wow okay yeah. wow wonderful wow okay and so if you see, and um, most people are familiar with the, the Bullyper statue, statue, the Bullyper fresco with the uh, Aegean blue background that's, uh, that's in the museum in Iraklion. Um, there were actually multiple uh, frescoes with Bullyping scenes on them in Knossos. We're not sure exactly how many. There are fragments of at least two more. Uh, with different colored backgrounds, and they they all clearly show white-skinned bull leapers. Wow. Okay? As well as the one uh, dark red-skinned one who is uh, doing the somersault over the bull's back in the big bull leaper fresco. And so that's, um, that's unambiguous. Uh, this was something... Um, this was something that people of all genders did as part of this uh, religious uh, sacred activity. And they all wore the same outfit, you know, the same loincloth and codpiece simply because that was what you wore right. for the activity. Um, so, yeah. I, wow. Okay. So they're so there's very clear evidence then that they they were both male and female were bull leapers. Yeah. Um, wow. And what do you, do you think the other pieces were just broken or do you think that they may have been purposely not shared as publicly as the, um, let's say male piece leaping? No, I, I think it's mostly a matter of the fact that, uh, that, the frescoes, we're lucky we have any of the frescoes at all, um, to be honest. <clears throat> um, a fresco is a painting that's done on fresh plaster, right? So you put the plaster on the wall, and then while the plaster is still damp, you paint on it, and the paint absorbs into the plaster, and that's, that makes it, um, they keep better. They don't age and deteriorate as fast as just a painting on a wall surface. Um, and that's why we have them at all. Um, the vast majority of the frescoes from Crete were not found in place on the wall. They were found in piles of fragments on the floor. Oh my God. Yeah. Because eventually over the centuries and millennia, the plaster breaks loose and falls, right? Yeah. <clears throat> and so... Um, the, the archaeologists, uh, the people who were working on these excavations had to very carefully pry apart these piles, stacks of fragments of plaster. And some of them lit would literally just disintegrate in their hands. Oh. And so I think we're lucky that we have what we do. And that's why, um, that's why the frescoes are so fragmentary. If you look at... Um, the majority of the picture of most of them is actually an educated guess reconstruction. Yes. Yes. With um, little tiny pieces in there that correspond yeah. to the, yeah. Uh, yeah. That's wow. Wow. Yeah. Now I, you know, when I, when I went to see them the very first time, that was one of my sort of frustrations because it seemed like there were just these tiny pieces, but now I think I understand. Yeah, exactly. Just how lucky we are to even have that. Yeah. And to have it so long, so long, yeah. 
Oh my goodness. So we have been here for a bit. Um, in closing, do you, is there anything that you would like to share about Minoans or like your favorite things or your, you've shared some of your pet peeves or anything else that sort of they're like, uh, think about these or these are things that, I don't know, that, that you see as important aspects that maybe people don't know or think about when it comes to the Minoans. Hmm. Well, I mean, they're, they're generally pretty well known. I think um, we tend to focus so much on the giant temples because they're very impressive and, <clears throat> and the religion that went on around those. Um, but the vast majority of Minoans didn't live or work in the temples. Uh, they lived in the cities and towns and villages or out uh, on the coastal lowlands as farmers. Mm -hmm. So the majority of Minoans were just like us, right? They were ordinary people. They had jobs that we would probably find familiar. You know, they were, they were farmers or bakers or weavers or, you know, and um, because this was the Bronze Age, <clears throat> excuse me, the, um, there was no distinction between the sacred and the mundane. Um, to people in, in that era, uh, the divine permeated everything and no one would think anything of it if you said, oh yeah, I was out walking in the field today and I saw this deity. Right, right. And people had shrines in their homes. We have found tons and tons of altars and shrines um, in, in private homes. Um, they would have had altars uh, in their workplaces for whoever their patron deity was for their occupation. Um, you know, they they were real people. I, that's, um, to me, that's my biggest takeaway. Like we can look at the linear A and linear B tablets and literally see people's fingerprints on them. Wow. And that is such a connection to me. Yes. Person who lived, you know, 3,500 years ago and touched that piece of clay, and I can see their fingerprint. Oh, I love that. That's also one of my favorite things about going to the sites is uh, just thinking about sometimes I sit there for a bit, especially if the site is empty, and try to imagine that where I'm sitting right now, maybe one kid, girl, man, whatever, also sat looking out, you know, across mm -hmm. this, you know. Um, yeah. and trying to like, trying to imagine the noises that might've been around the sounds, you know, mm -hmm. and in Crete, even today, I mean, it's still very agricultural Island. The lowlands are still places of farming. Um, you can still hear the sheep. You can still hear the goats. And so I try to imagine, you know, uh, if that, that, that may be likely some of the sounds that they heard, you can still hear the birds, you can still hear all mm -hmm. that, um, so I think that there's a a beauty to it. And I, I mean, there are lots of places are beautiful across Greece, but I don't know why Crete and this culture seems to be really powerful, at least in my sort of recent discovery. Um, and so then I keep going back and going back. And now, like I said to you earlier, you know, I want to live there and, and, and build there. And um, one of the things actually that just came up as you were saying that is the caves. Um, I know mm -hmm. that the Greeks worshipped in caves, and I've been in a bunch of caves, and there's gorges uh, all over Crete. Do you think that the Minoans would have practiced something as like that as well in their in the caves pre Greek? Caves? Oh, oh yeah, yeah, they did. There's there's no question, um, and uh, that's also something they brought down from old Europe with them um, because that it goes back to the caves up in Anatolia. <clears throat> but there are um, there are several sacred caves um, that you can still visit in Crete. Um, there is one on Mount Dicte and one on um, Silaritis um, that are both uh, considered to be uh, Rhea's sacred cave where he she gave birth to the divine child. Mm -hmm. On the north coast. Uh, fairly close to each other are Aletheia's cave. She's a uh, midwife goddess, among other things, and um, Brito Martis's uh, cave as well. 
And there were probably uh, dozens, maybe hundreds of them um, all over the island. And uh, some of them, Alethea's Cave continued in use um, into Christian times. Oh, wow. Yeah. So this is something that was, you know, that that disappeared. This this was, and I would be willing to bet that there are places way out in the mountains that the tourists never go that people still have shrines in the caves. Yeah, that would be great. I've been to the cave of Zeus. I've been to a bunch of caves. It's my favorite thing to do. Uh, I've been, there's a cave called the Cave of the Wisdom of God. Um, uh I've tried to go to the one of the Elithia's caves, but they've uh, they've locked it out. They don't let people in. They've put uh, on it, and I think it's a danger thing uh, because it's kind of collapsing. It's coming down. Oh wow! Uh, I've been to the cave of the bear of Artemis, the white bear, uh, and I've been to a cave. It's I think it's in Scopea. That is this massive cave. It's my favorite cave. Uh, it's a bit eerie. But they say, I've never pushed beyond, so the cave mouth or the cave as you go in, they say that beyond it, they found rooms where there was an altar, they found other rooms, whatever, uh, but it's pitch black and full of uh, bats. And so I, I would like someone to go with me in case I break my ankle or something. <laughs> um, and so I can hear, you know, almost my mother's voice in the background, don't go back there. Uh, <laughs> but it's, it's such a large cave and... And like you said, there's there's so many caves. The one thing that I guess irks me is that at every single cave, they've placed some kind of a, a church or Christian altar, which I'm sure you're not surprised. But there are some caves where it's like, there's absolutely nothing here, but there'll be a table with some Christian iconography right at the mouth of the cave. So there's almost like this kind of, almost a little bit of this possessiveness of it. It's like, we don't know that this cave was sacred, but just in case we're going to place this here as a, you know, as a stamp. Oh, I just, um, and this is just for my own personal, you know, I was raised Greek Orthodox Christian, but sometimes when I see a little bit of the stamp in some of these ancient yeah. places. <laughs> well, I mean, but that's what happens, right? Because as the religion comes in, they look, it looks around for the sacred places, right? It's like, okay, people are already going to this sacred place, so why don't we just like put a new outfit on it? Yeah. Absolutely. Absolutely. Oh. Yeah. <clears throat> well, thank you so much. I'm so glad that we did this. We may have to do this again, perhaps, uh, if you're if you're uh <laughs> open to it, uh, to talk maybe a little bit more Minoan stuff. But I think this is this has been really interesting, especially for people who maybe hear of Minoans, and especially like I said, with the Minotaur becoming popular again, Ariadne becoming popular again. I, I think it's important to clear some things up for those who are interested, um, and uh, make that line or that tether maybe a little more clear um, as to the character as to these characters. Yeah, thank you so much for joining me. Well, thanks for having me. Yes, thank you. I appreciate you being here. <laughs> all right. Well, then, uh, thanks so much. And uh, I'll see you guys all next time. <laughs>